before we move on, I want you to know that we are one church in multiple locations. And this morning, as we gather here, there's a group of fellas gathering at a local minimum security prison called RMCU. And here's the deal. Last weekend at their services, four guys gave their lives to Jesus for the very first time. So awesome. Yeah, so welcome. So we say welcome to you guys at RMCU. Today we are in the second week uh, of a series, the second week of a series called Voices. We're talking about the voices that exist inside of our head that keep us or maybe hinder us from being everything that God has called and created us to be. Last weekend, Pastor David, our lead pastor, he talked about the voice of fear. If you missed that, I would encourage you to check it out online. It's on our Fountain Springs Church app. We've posted on our Facebook page. You can find it on our website where you can get caught up. I'd encourage you to check that out. We talked about fear. This week, the voice that that I'm talking about is the voice of shame. It's the voice of shame. And as I was wrestling with creating this teaching, and I use that word intentionally, it was a wrestling match for me because it was very difficult to figure out a baseline. How do we talk about shame in this context? How do we talk about shame? Because the way that you experience shame and the way that you feel shame might be different from the way that I experience and feel shame. And the way that shame plays out in my life and the way it plays out in your life can be very different. Shame is really intangible. It's very difficult to talk about in this context. So as I was wrestling with it, I came across some research. A lady named Dr. Brené Brown, she is a researcher, she's a scholar, and she's dedicated her life's work to this idea of shame. And she describes shame like this. She says, shame is the fear of disconnection. Shame is the fear of disconnection. Shame is the fear of disconnection. I I think we can understand this. Uh, We're coming into football season, and some of you are fans of teams that you're ashamed of, right? And if more people knew the team you were a fan of, they would want to disconnect from you. They might lose some respect for you. Shame is the fear of disconnection. Some of you don't wash your hands after going to the bathroom, and you should be ashamed. And if And if more people knew about your habits, they would want to disconnect from you. They would want nothing to do with you. Some of you won't let your husbands grow beards, and you should be ashamed. (laughs) You should be ashamed because your husband then has to walk around and not be in some of the manly circles that exist out there, right? Shame. Shame is this fear of disconnection. You know, the research shows, the research says that that, that we are built for connection, that, that we all, every single one of us, desire connection. And so shame is when we begin to fear that people will maybe treat us different because of something. Well, it's a fear that we'll push away because every single one of us desires connection. The great author and theologian Bruce Springsteen once said, everybody needs a place to rest. Everybody wants to have a home. Don't make no difference what nobody says. Ain't nobody like to be alone. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. The boss knows. The boss knows. In 1944, there was a a case study that um, is pretty brutal. It, 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 It violates everything today that the laws would say about human rights, but it was 1944. And in 1944, there was a case study with a group of 40 infants. And they took these 40 infants, and what they wanted to find out, they wanted to find out what is necessary, how much affection is necessary, how much is affection tied into our makeup as a human being. 
And so what they did is, for, is, is they, they withheld affection from these 40 infants. They fed them and changed them and, and gave them what at that point was believed to be the basic needs of life. But then, and at all costs, they withheld affection from these infants. Well, just a few months into the case study, they called the whole thing off. Because just a few months into the case study, over half of these infants had died. And the result of the case study is this. Is that as human beings, affection is not an extra in our life. Connection with other people is not an extra in our life. Belonging with other people is not an extra in our life. But it's a basic need that we have as human beings. That we were created to belong. We were created to be connected with others. See, Brené Brown's research says that we are created for connection. And Bruce Springsteen, he feels it in his life that we need to be connected with other people. And this 1944 case study says that we need to be connected. In Brené Brown's research, there, there was a group of people who did not experience shame. There was a group of people who did not experience shame. And this group of people, they, uh, they had a couple things in common. The first thing they had in common is they have a strong sense of love and belonging. This group of people who do not experience shame, every single one of them had a strong sense of love and belonging. What I find fascinating is the second thing here is that every single one of them, they believe they are worthy of love and belonging. They believe they are worthy of love and belonging. Every single person in this group of people who did not experience shame they understood this idea of that value of, of worth, that they had some sort of value of, or worth in themselves. See, shame says, shame says that because of blank, because of this thought you had, this thing you did, this thing that happened to you, this secret you have, that because of blank, I am not worthy of connection. I am not worthy of connection, what I want to dive into today is not what shame says, but what God says. You see, God says you are worthy of love and belonging because I have created you worthy. God says you are worthy of love and belonging because I have created you worthy. This is often a difficult concept for us to understand because we live in a world where we value other people all the time based on what they can do or can't do, based on what position they hold in our life or what they can do for us or don't do for us. But there's these other places in our life where we understand this idea of intrinsic value. I want you to take a moment and think about who your family is. And I don't know what that word family means for you, but who is that group of people that you would call family? I want you to pause for a second. I want you to put yourself in a situation where you'd be asked, you have to remove one person from your family to no longer be a part of your family anymore. Put yourself in that situation for a second. Some of you came up with that answer way too quick. All right. Right? But, but that is a difficult question for us to be in. I have those of you that have multiple children, think for a second if you were put in a situation where you had to choose one of your children to no longer be a part of your family. You can't do it. You can't do it. I'm a, I'm a dad, right? I, I have a son. He's, he's one year old, and, and, and I value my son, but I don't value my son because he's cute, and believe me, he's cute, and I don't value my son because he's going to be a professional hockey player, but believe me, he's going to be a professional hockey player, but I don't value him for those reasons. I value him because he's my son. I see just intrinsic value inside of him. He just has a value because he is. Just 
by existing, he has a value that I cannot separate from him. And there's nothing he could do and nothing he could say that could ever push me to pull that away. And this is how God views us. Yeah, it's so difficult. We can understand this when it comes to some other people that we love in our life. But so often it's so difficult to understand that about ourselves, to think that God values us just as we are. Just as we are. I'm a, I'm a dad, as I mentioned, and there's, there's moments in my life and there's days when I have thoughts that aren't very fatherly. There's times that I come home and I don't feel like being a dad or there's mornings when I wake up and I don't feel like being a dad. And some of the thoughts I have about fatherhood sometimes that if you could get inside my head and if you could see my thoughts, I would feel shame. I would be ashamed. I'm a pastor and part of my job as a pastor is to help guide other people in their relationship with Jesus. Part of my job as a pastor is to help guide us in some of these spiritual moments and this spiritual journey that we're on. But there are days and there are moments and sometimes there are entire weeks when I'm not having very pastorly thoughts. There are days when I have doubts and I have questions and I don't feel like a pastor. And in those moments, if you could see into my thoughts and you could get inside my head, I would be ashamed. I would be ashamed because I have great connection with people through being a pastor and I have great connection with people through being a father and I would hate to lose that connection with others. See, shame is this fear of disconnection. It's this fear that people will look at us different, see us different, treat us different, think about us differently if only they knew the things that were going on in my life. Shame is the reason you haven't built up the courage to talk to your wife about your porn addiction. Shame is the reason you haven't told your husband about the emotional affair that you're having at work. Shame is the reason nobody knows about those suicidal thoughts or the abuse or the rape that happened. Shame is the reason you haven't talked about those things. Shame is the reason that you keep going further and further and further in debt to keep up an image in your life that you have it all together with the nice car and the nice house, eating at the nice restaurants, it's shame. Shame is the reason we keep those secrets in our life. It's the fear that we would be different, that we would be treated different, that people would think of us different. Shame is that fear of disconnection. It's shame. Shame is a powerful thing. Shame is a powerful thing in our life. And I want you to know today that God hates it. Shame is a powerful thing, and God hates it. This what brings us to what I call the great tension of humanity, and as you read through the story of Scripture, as you read through the narrative of the Bible, we see this tension, and I think for many of us, we live in this tension, and we feel this tension that the creator desires a connection with us, and we talk about that all the time here at this church. We, we preach, and we teach, and we try to live out that you can have a relationship with God, the one who made you, that you can be known by him and you can know him and you can walk with him every day. Number two is that we are unworthy of this connection. We are unworthy of this connection. Number three, aware of our unworthiness, we reject the creator, right? It's shame. We push him away and we protect and we don't want him to look at the things in our life that we find shameful. And number four, the creator, this is what I think is so beautiful about the story of scripture. The creator spends the rest of history trying to convince us to accept 
his connection. The creator spends the rest of history trying to convince us to accept his connection. I think the greatest picture we have of this in the scriptures is the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is that God came to earth as a man in flesh and human form as one of us. And he lived what would be a perfect life. He was generous and he was loving. And he healed our sick and he made our blind see and he even raised some of us from the dead. He lived this perfect life, but the way Jesus lived and the things he said, the things he taught and the love which guided his life, it shone a light on some things in society that people didn't want to reveal. It shone a light on some things in people's lives that were shameful. It shone a light into government systems that were corrupt. It shined a light into some of the religious systems that weren't right. It shined a light into the people's lives and the things that were dark in their lives. And we as human beings didn't like it then and we don't like it now. And so we, human beings, we pushed him away. We pushed him away and we crucified him. We crucified him. I don't know if you understand Crucifixion, we obviously don't crucify people anymore, but crucifixion was, was a torturous way to die. Crucifixion was a torture tool, and what they would do is they would nail a hand in your wrist here, and they nail a, a, a nail in your wrist here, and you'd be nailed to a cross that had a beam this way and a beam this way, and there'd be nails in your feet. And the way you died when you were crucified, it wasn't from starvation, it, it wasn't from blood loss. But the way you died in crucifixion was suffocation. See, what happens on the cross is you get hung up on the cross and you'd be bent over in a position that eventually would make it very difficult to breathe. And so the only way that you could breathe would be to pull up on the nails in your wrists and to push on the nails in your feet and, and you take a breath. And, well, eventually you would lose the strength and what would happen physically is your lungs would collapse and it would be become harder and harder and harder to breathe. And eventually on the cross, you would die of suffocation. But what was so torturous about the cross, and some would argue what was most torturous about the cross, was that it was a torture tool built to shame those it was killing. And if you ever read in the, in the Gospels the story of Jesus, if you ever read about these moments, you can see how the the, the, the process here was meant to shame him as they hauled Jesus through the streets and through the crowds, as they publicly beat him and slandered him and spit on him to shame him. Even the moment at the cross as he's laying on the cross as these men, these soldiers, had driven the stakes into his hands and his feet. They took a sign and wrote on it, King of the Jews, and very sarcastically nailed it to the top of the cross. As if to say, if you're the king of the Jews, why are you on a cross? Come down from there if you're the king of the Jews. And they tore his clothes off and gambled for his clothes very sarcastically, pretending that if you were a king, these clothes would be worth something. Some king you are hanging on a cross. What I find incredible in these moments is Jesus has been shamed and battered and beaten. The words out of Jesus' mouth again reveals his desire for connection in this moment. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. Forgive them, God. Forgive them. They don't get it. 
They don't see it. And even in this moment, Jesus' heart is overwhelmed with value, even for the men who are there on that day nailing the stakes into his hands, the men who are mocking him and shaming him. Even in that moment, Jesus sees value in humanity and sees value in those very people to say, I know what you've done. I'm seeing what you're doing. My desire is still to be connected with you. You still belong. You still belong. Before all this went down, Jesus was meeting with his disciples. He was meeting with his followers. And one of Jesus' disciples, his name was Simon. Well, sometimes in Scripture they call him Peter, and sometimes they call him Simon Peter. If that's confused you all the way up to this day, you're welcome. But he's having this conversation with Simon Peter before this crucifixion scene. And, and he tells Simon Peter, says, Simon Peter, listen. I'm about to go through what is going to be one of, probably will be the hardest moment of my life. I'm about to go through the crucifixion. I'm about to be ridiculed and shamed. And Simon Peter, I'm just going to warn you what's going to happen is you are going to deny me three times in this process. And Simon Peter is like, no, Jesus, there's no way I'm going to deny you. There's no way I'm going to deny you. In fact, Jesus, I would give my life for you. After everything you've done for me, I would lay my life down for you. I will not deny you. And Jesus just drops it and he lets it go. But as Jesus predicted, throughout this scene of crucifixion as they're marching him through the city, Simon Peter is asked three times, do you know this man? Hey, aren't you one of the guys who's with this man, aren't you? One of his disciples, one of his followers, and Simon Peter, no, 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 I don't know that guy. I've never seen that guy. I'm not, I'm not connected with him. He denies him three times. What I find incredible is Jesus, he, he dies and he faces death and he resurrects from the dead and this is the power that we've built the entire church on, right? This is why we gather every weekend is because of this resurrection. It's the Easter story, but Jesus resurrects from the dead, and he goes and he meets with his disciples post-resurrection. He meets with his disciples post-resurrection, he has a conversation with Simon Peter. This conversation is an incredible moment. I wanna read it together. He, he says, when they had finished eating, they had this meal of fish that Simon Peter was a part of catching. He says, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Pointing to the fish and the people in this moment. That the word that Jesus uses for love is the word agape. One of the things that's difficult when we read scripture is scripture wasn't written in English. Scripture was, the original language often had multiple words that we translate as the same word, right? And love is one of these words where, where there's different words in the original language that we translate as the same word in English. It's love. And so when Jesus says to Simon Peter, do you love me? He uses this word agape, And this word agape, it means a self-sacrificing love. It's the kind of love that you would have for someone where you'd lay your life down for them. It's the kind of love that Jesus had just exemplified on the cross. Do you agape me more than these? And Peter replies, yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you, except Peter uses a different word for love. He uses this word philo or philo, and and this word for love is not a self-sacrificing love, but it's a kind of love you would have for a friend. Can you sense the awkwardness in this conversation? As Peter has just denied Jesus 
three times. And he's trying to kind of smoothly get out of this, right? Do you agape love me, Jesus says. And Peter says, yeah, I, I philo love you, of course. Yes, I, I love you. And so Jesus then says, feed my sheep. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Jesus again uses this word agape. Do you self-sacrificingly love me? He answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And again, Simon Peter uses this word philo or philo. Yes, I love you. Not self-sacrificing love, but I love you like a friend. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Now, I hope you can sense the awkwardness in this. If I'm, if I'm there in this moment, even as I'm reading this story, there's a piece of me that's like, Jesus, back off on the guy. Right? He obviously is hurting. He obviously is ashamed of what he's just done. He's ashamed of how he's abandoned you. Why do you keep pressing in on his shame? Why do you keep putting your finger on his shame? Would you just stop? Just leave him alone. But Jesus is pushing for something different here. He's pushing for something deeper. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But this time Jesus uses the word that Simon Peter was using. Do you philo me or do you philo me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I philo you, I love you. And Jesus says then, feed my sheep. Here's what Jesus is pressing on, pressing in on in this moment. He says, Peter, I see you. I see you. I know your shame. I see it. I see it. I know. I know that you're ashamed that you denied me. I know that you're ashamed that you don't love me the way that I love you. I know that brings you great shame. But he's looking at Peter in the eye and he's saying, still, still, I want you to feed my sheep. You still belong. I see you, yeah. I see you exactly how you are, but still you belong to me. Feed my sheep. And I think for many of us, when we experience this shame with God, When we experience this shame, we want to push away and protect, and we think we're unworthy of this relationship that God invites us into. And I hope you hear God saying to you today, I see it too. I see that thing you're ashamed of, or those things you're ashamed of. I see it, but I still love you, and I'm still calling you to be a part of my kingdom. I'm still calling you to be a part of my kingdom. If we want to deal with with our shame. If we want to deal with our shame, we must accept that God loves us. Step one, if we want to deal with our shame, we have to accept that God loves us exactly how we are. God sees it. He sees it. But he loves you and he accepts you.